Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Good morning. This is Eve Feinberg live from Ashray, and I am here with Dr. Rick Paulson from FNS Reports, one of the new sister journals. We're out here beating the bushes and looking for all the great science being presented at the annual Eshrae meeting because we want that science published in our journals. We also want that science live on the podcast, and we've brought you some of the best abstracts from the meeting with the authors presenting. And it's my pleasure to be discussing a topic that's near and dear to my heart, the topic of the composition of commercially available human pre-implantation embryo culture media. And we are being joined by the authors. Miriam Zagers. And Sebastian Marstenbroek. Welcome. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Miriam, I really enjoyed your presentation. Tell us what motivated you to uh, put this paper together. Well... I was working in the IVF lab in Amsterdam UMC and uh, I was culturing embryos and uh, started my research with Sebastian Mastenbroek and then that was the moment I realized that we have no idea what is in the human embryo culture media where we culture the embryos in. So. Yeah, let me pause for a second. I think, you know, part of what's so interesting to me is that when you buy something that you eat, you buy a granola bar or a box of cereal, every ingredient is listed. But for our listeners who may or may not be aware, embryo culture media has no ingredients listed, correct? So it's kind of like a homebrew, commercially available culture media that we really don't know what's in it, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it's not entirely true that we don't know any of the ingredients because most manufacturers uh, provide a list of ingredients but we don't know about the concentrations of each component uh, in the media. Right, so we would say kind of like, let's go back to the granola bar example. We know that there's flour and sugar but in a food product that we eat it lists what the calorie content is, not just the ingredients. And so with culture media we don't know what the ratio of those ingredients are. Fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. Okay, so then what did you do? Well, what I did is uh, I tried to at least uh, determine some of the concentrations of some of the components, and we did. So we measured 40 components uh, in the embryo culture media. Amino acids, electrolytes, energy sources, so quite different uh, components. And yeah, I think we, uh, we know a little bit more about the concentrate, the composition, but uh, but still, yeah. And were the media similar, or did you find a lot of differences between the different brands? Well, none of the media uh, were the same, and yeah, all the media look quite different, I would say. How many different medias did you look at? Well, I 
collected 80 different samples. 80 different samples from how many brands of commercially available media? If I'm correct, it were seven different uh, suppliers and 11 different brands of media, because some suppliers provide different brands of, of media. And yeah, the different, uh, the different types of media were also included. So we have uh, sequential media, continuous media, and uh, we measured the components of uh, all the different types. Miriam, why do you think this is important for people to understand and to know about the composition of culture media? Well, uh, we've seen that uh, the choice of culture medium affects uh, important IVF outcomes, so cumulative life birth rates and also birth weight of the children. It's without a doubt relevant to, to know where we culture the embryos in because it has, has such a big effect on uh, yeah, what we do it for, actually. Miriam, the culture media has previously been analyzed. Uh, did your results mesh with the previous ones or do you think there have been changes over time since the last time that culture media was analyzed? Uh, well, of course we compared our results with previous work and there were a lot of similarities. I saw a few uh, differences but they were not extreme so I, I don't think there were big changes made to the medium over time. How did you measure the different components of the media? Well, we have uh, very nice colleagues in the AMC and they are trained to uh, perform uh, different uh, analyses. So we use the Cobus 8000 analyzer, that's a diagnostics lab train actually, uh, with standard measurements to measure yeah, half of the components, I, I guess. And uh, we also used UPLC MSMS to measure, uh, for example, the amino acids, lactate and pyruvate. Yes, and that abbreviation stands for the measurement type is mass, yeah, spectrometry. mass spectrometry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Can you use an example? For example, I noticed during your presentation you talked about glucose uh, and the difference in the different media. Can you give the, our listeners an idea of how different the culture media are from one another? Well, with glucose, we saw a pattern within the sequential media. So, uh, yeah, I would say it was a high-low-high pattern because we saw in the fertilization media that the concentration was around two and a half, three millimolar. Then it was decreased to around half a millimolar in most media, in uh, cleavage stage media. And then in the blastocyst media, it's again, uh, yeah, around three millimolar. And so it's a general trend seen in the, in the media, but I think that the reason why it's lower in the cleavage stage media is, is based on not so much evidence, and recent in vivo evidence shows that the, con the low concentration is probably non-physiological. Uh, so yeah, we might need to reconsider this concentration uh, in the cleavage stage media. But in order for us to make adjustments, we first would have to know what is in the culture media when they sell it to us. Yeah, that's exactly what our opinion. Yeah, yeah. So the take-home message that you would like to send to our listeners is? Well, uh, first things first, when we know the culture medium composition, that would be the starting point of innovation of the culture media, which is necessary because we see so many different outcomes when we culture in different uh, media. So in order to improve IVF outcomes, we need to start knowing the composition of the media or every culture in today. Sebastian, is it time for us to have a call to action and start pressuring our professional societies to insist that media manufacturers 
put the composition on there and let us know when they change it? Most definitely. Um, that is without doubt that it is uh, uh, actually some urgency in disclosing all the contents. Um, and we know from previous studies and that compared several media that the relevancy is quite clear. We see a difference in live birth rates, so it's very important for the efficacy of our treatments. We get more pregnancies and live births in one medium compared to the other. Um, but it's also very relevant for child outcomes. So in a previous trial where we randomized two media that were quite different, we saw a difference in birth rate, for example. And for me, as an embryologist, is uh, I really cannot understand that we put embryos in these culture media fluids where we don't know what's in them with such an effect. Yeah, after all those years, I still don't understand this. And it's I feel it also as a responsibility uh, uh, as an embryologist, uh, uh, helping couples fulfill the child wish and uh, uh, these children being born, that we should know what we do. And as a scientist, I think it's important as well, because we want to innovate, we want to make these media better. It's our responsibility, responsibility also to these children being born. And we cannot start with that without knowing what's in the media. That's why we simply bought all the available media, did the analysis, looks what's in there, and we hope this is a starting point of new research and new motivation for others in our fields to uh, uh, collaborate and uh, uh, innovate on this culture media. Well done. It is not a trivial subject. We really appreciate you doing this work. It's important, and we look forward to seeing it published. Yeah, thank you so much for coming by and speaking with us today. And thank, thank you, too. Thank you for the invitation. This next abstract is a multi-center randomized control trial of intra-ovarian injection of PRP for women with poor ovarian response. I'm joined by Rick Paulson. From FNS Reports. And let's remember that PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. And joining us is the author of the study. I'm Dr. Nola Herlihy from Reproductive Medicine Associates of Houston. I'm the medical director there. And I was a fellow at the EVRMA Thomas Jefferson Fellowship Program. So Nola, my understanding is this was your thesis project, correct? That's right, yep. All right, so tell me a little bit about why, like what the theory even is on why PRP might improve ovarian response. PRP is just a concentrated form of plasma that's enriched with extra physiologic levels of platelets, about 1.7 to 1.8 times the normal. And platelets do a variety of things, uh, but we know that uh, they have, they're enriched with extra cytokines and growth factors that we think are involved in folliculogenesis. So the thought is that potentially by giving PRP, we might be able to improve women who's, who have low ovarian response to stimulation, improve their response to stimulation by recruiting more of the follicles that are there in the follicular pool. So, Tell me a little bit about the trial in terms of what the study design was and who you were able to recruit. So the study design, it was a randomized controlled trial and we were recruiting women who were poor responders. So we had a very rigorous definition of what poor response meant. We wanted our patients to have had two 
cycles with at least or with less than or equal to three mature oocytes. And the reason that we chose two is because we really wanted to make sure that these women were women who are truly poor responders. We know that women uh, can have a bad cycle, that one month they could have three oocytes and the next month they could have five, six, seven, or eight. So we really wanted to make sure that we were capturing women who were truly poor responders to see if this intervention had an effect on them. And was there an age range or an age limit for the study? Yes, our age cutoff was 38. And the reason that we chose that is because we wanted to have, we wanted to work with young poor responders. This is the group that we thought we might be able to see a difference in most. We know that older women, uh, most older women have diminished ovarian reserve and increased rates of aneuploidies. So we were trying to work with young women because we thought if there was going to be a difference that we might see it in that population. So tell me a little bit about what the protocol you used was. There was some sort of priming in the months before, and then tell me about that as well as how you injected PRP. Yeah, so a big question was, when do we give PRP in, res in relation to when we did IVF? And our collaborators in Turkey, who had had the largest case series on this, did it a month prior. Uh, in truth, there's no standard right now for PRP. We just don't know. But a month had been shown to be effective in their case series and also was feasible in terms of study protocol. So that's why we chose to do our PRP about a month prior. And then we gave everybody uh, an overlap of estrogen and progesterone, and we did that just for uh, just to have standardization between our two groups, between our control group and between our intervention group, to make sure that their stimulation would line up pretty much at exactly the same time. And then from there, we did we did IVF on day two to four of the induced menses, following the month of estrogen and progesterone overlap. And then when you did PRP, you injected it bilaterally into each ovary. Yes, that's right. So we did it uh, four cc's into each ovary. And again, that protocol is somewhat arbitrary in truth because there's no, set, there's no set standard for PRP, but that was what our collaborators had done. Four cc's into each ovary, one cc into each of four different locations within each ovary. Do you ever see the liquid coming out of the ovary or does you feel like it stays in there? We didn't see it coming out of the ovary. I do think it stays in there. In truth, it's hard to know, but the reality is that that's how people are going to do the procedure. And so if it's going to work in the way that it's that we're doing it, it's going to work, right? Like, in theory, we, I guess we don't fully know whether or not it's staying in the ovary, but we did watch it go in, so I feel relatively confident that it stayed in. Did, did, the, con did the control group get a sham injection, or did, did you not. not? You did not? Okay. We chose not to do it. It was, a, it was a question that we really thought about in protocol development, but ultimately we decided that there's still risk to doing an injection, and we didn't think that the benefit would outweigh the risk. We have done multiple cycles on many patients who are poor responders and not seen an improvement. So doing the actual injecting of the ovary, we didn't think was going to make that big of a difference. So I think we're ready for the punchline, huh? What did you find? <laughs> well, actually, I was going to just interject and ask, sure. how did you power the study and how many patients were in each arm? What was the primary outcome? So lots of good questions there. Our primary outcome was number of mature oocytes. And we powered the study based on previous findings that had suggested that women who received PRP had an average of 1.7 oocytes before the PRP and 2.7 after the PRP. So we thought, 
let's look for a difference in one mature oocyte between groups. So that's how we powered our study. And we needed to have 72 participants total uh, to participate to get to that. But we uh, had 87 patients enrolled because we knew that there might be potential for dropout. And ultimately, we ended up with 83 patients who were randomized. So we did pretty well in terms of um, in terms of enrollment. And you asked me one more question, and I forget what I do. I forget what the last question was. I don't remember. I guess why not? Why not power for live birth? Because I think that that would have been a lot harder to do. <laughs> you know, with poor responders, we yeah, we would have needed a really large group, and so um, powering to get number of mature oocytes was just going to be a lot more feasible. Well, so now we're ready for the punchline, and how did it turn out? Well, it turned out that PRP did not improve response to stimulation. So for our primary outcome, there was no difference in mature oocytes between groups. And we did look at secondary outcomes, blastocysts, euploid blastocysts, and sustained implantation rate, and there was no difference between groups for any of those parameters either. Did you get more oocytes in the, in the study uh, cycle as compared to the historical Right, because you had two that had very poor outcomes, and now you did a third cycle. Were there more oocytes in those cycles, even in the control group? That's a great question. We didn't do that analysis. Uh, <laughs> I think I would have gotten slapped on my hand by my uh, mentor if I did do that <laughs> analysis. <laughs> he would have said, what's the point of a randomized controlled trial if you're looking at that, Dr. Herlihy? <laughs> just to show that people often improve over time if you just do the same thing over and over again. Yes, it's... That's why you did an RCT and why you should be commended for your stuff. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, I think that that is one of the take-home messages. The sustained implantation rate, which was, um, which was uh, women discharged pregnant between eight and nine weeks per randomized patient was 30% in both groups, which is pretty remarkable for this patient population. So I really felt encouraged at the end of it that we were getting women pregnant in both groups. So maybe we just need to not give up on these women. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful take-home point that cumulative success over time is not negligible, but it doesn't sound like PRP improves that. Unfortunately not. Not yet. We'll see. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your work with us. Thank you. And our next abstract is going to involve the topic of genetic testing in the diagnosis of female infertility. And joining us is? Asma Sassi, I'm a medical doctor. I'm working at the fertility clinic. Uh, uh, I'm from the uh, Brussels University Hospital from uh, Belgium, Brussels, Belgium. Thanks for joining us and tell us the title of your presentation because it's a mouthful. So uh, my presentation is about the implication of targeted next generation sequencing in the genetic diagnosis of premature ovarian insufficiency in the clinical practice. Pretty amazing stuff. And the rationale behind the study was basically that? To identify the diagnosis yields of targeted next generation sequencing in premature ovarian insufficiency. So we can start with what is the premature ovarian insufficiency such as a clinical, um, very heterogeneous clinical syndrome defined by the loss of the ovarian activity before the age of 40. So um, the diagnosis is retained in presence of uh, oligoamenorrhea or amenorrhea for at least four uh, months associated to elevated FSH level objectivized two times at least at more than one in, uh, month uh, apart. 
Uh, it concerns uh, a huge number of women uh, before the year uh, for, for 40 years. It's estimated to be that uh, it, it concerns around approximately 3.7% of women before that, 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 this age. It's a major uh, cause of infertility for these women. Uh, women sorry. Because um, uh, when the diagnosis is made, generally chances of pregnancy become very low. It's estimated less than 5%, and it's a bit, a little bit higher in patients presented. And um, let's say um, in the first year, some women can present an, um, um, let's say, um, intermittent uh, ovarian uh, intermittent ovarian uh, function activity. Yeah. So, uh, options in assisted procreation become very limited, in general limited to outside donation because it's become dif very difficult to monitor these patients or to stimulate them or to do anything. So it's, the infertility has a huge impact on the, on the psychology and the well-being of these women. And I think historically it's pretty fair to say that in the majority of situations when these women present and we do a workup, most of the time we're, to date, we're not yet able to find a reason as to why. So in the majority, so we, we know that PY, or premature ovarian insufficiency or PY, is, uh, can be due to, um, yeah, it can be iatrogenic due to um, ovarian surgery, chemotherapy for example, maybe infectious, maybe uh, due to autoimmune, um, autoimmunity, but can also, um, the well-retained genetic causes for PY are chromosomal abnormality, structural or numerical abnormalities, uh, for example the Turner syndrome, uh, can be also uh, due to fMR1 permutation or extragyle permutation, which can expand three to five percent of PY cases. Uh, the, 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 the diagnosis workup is mainly uh, limited to these two um, uh, tests. The, we, we look for the karyotype and the extragyle permutation, and. But you took we us in a different direction, right? So you so studied quite a few women. How many did you end up studying with your study? So we have uh, included for the study uh, more than 150 patients. Uh, these patients were included based on the issue guidelines uh, on um, definition of PY. Um, we excluded patients with uh, already known cause, uh, iatrogenic etiology, presence of uh, 21 uh, hydroxylase um, antibodies, uh, those with uh, fMR1 permutation, and um, the idiopathic cases were, um, were evaluated by this uh, test. So in Munum, we have performed the next generation sequencing, targeted the sequencing of uh, 156 uh, genes reported to be associated to PUI in the literature. Um, the, the, the clinical evidence of all genes is limited, of the majority of genes is limited. A few of them have been validated to have uh, clinical evidence, but our results show that uh, we found uh, monogenic causal uh, it's genetic etiology in 7% of uh, our patients. In the majority, uh, uh, the mother in, 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 in genes which, uh, which have limited, uh, majority of them have limited uh, clinical evidence. So our work show that it's important also to evaluate genes 
in, 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 even with the low uh, clinical evidence. Were there clusters of genes that you identified that previously had not been reported to be associated with POI, or did you look at all genes that had already been previously associated? All the genes we included have been associated with PY, but the majority of them have limited, based on a recent, a recent systematic review of literature, uh, recently published uh, but by uh, Van uh, Der Kielen, uh, a colleague, uh, including uh, my colleague here. It was a very uh, wonderful systematic review showing that there is more than 200 genes report to be associated to PY in literature. And um, in this work, we have also classified, we have give uh, um, 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 uh, gene uh, phenotype relationship score low enough to classify the, 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 the clinical evidence of each genes. So we have genes with moderate uh, level of evidence, uh, strong and definitive, and the other are have limited evidence of uh, clinical evidence. So the majority of genes included in this panel have a limited uh, clinical evidence. And you found 7.3% had these genes. Do you speculate that the other 93% may have other genetic causes that have not yet been identified? Yeah. Or do you think those are other non-genetic causes? So maybe when testing more, a bigger number of patients, maybe we'll find uh, mutation of gene, in this gene. So the, the importance of this work is to, um, to, to, to learn more, to understand more the genetic basis of PUI and reporting mutation in that gene will allow us to better classify them but because the, the score of classification of uh, the clinical evidence of the different genes is based also of reports. When number of affected patients having this mutation increases, the scoring increases, so we can... We 7% is actually higher than what's previously been reported as a genetic cause. So I think that that's really exciting, and I think that we'll probably see more and more genetic panels becoming available to patients commercially, even in the future. So 7% is very interesting because comparing to the diagnostic yield of the karyotype, uh, it is estimated to be 7 to 10% for the karyotype and around 3 to 5% for fMR1 permutation. So comparing to these two ones, we, the, the, this work shows that um, the target next generation sequencing has important place in the gen genetic assessment of PY. A very few uh, publications showed uh, evaluated the diagnostic yield of uh, gene panel or target next generation sequencing in the assessment of the genetic etiology of PUI, including one which uh, published with my colleague in 2021. It showed around 9% of diagnostic yield, and more recently a publication by Hedare Al, who showed a very interesting uh, diagnostic yield, around 29%, but it was the biggest cohort of three, more than 300 patients, and it was a very interesting work. So, Did you look at the mothers at all? Did you go back and say, this patient's mother had the same genetic uh, defect and she also had the POI or the gene came from the father and that's why the mother did not have POI? So uh, we, we know that uh, there is a, 
we suspect a very important genetic background for the, the PUI because we report up to 31% of family history of PUI. So uh, in our study, we've tested very, very few um, families. The, um, the, the family study was performed in very little um, number of patients. So it's maybe the next step because to confirm uh, the causal uh, implication of a variant, of course, we have the characteristic of the mutation, uh, but also it's interesting to, to perform family study, family segregation studies, and functional study, but in our work, <laughs> it was not performed for all patients, or not performed for the majority of patients. No, it was a great study, no, we really appreciate you doing the work and helping us uh, try to understand and unravel the genetic causes of POI. Thank you for your invitation. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you very much. And we're back. This morning's first abstract that we're going to be talking about is the effect of clindamycin in a live biotherapeutic containing lactobacilli on the reproductive outcomes of IVF patients with abnormal vaginal microbiota, a double-blind placebo-controlled multi-sensor trial. And I am joined by... My name is uh, Dr. Thor Ho, and, and um, I am the uh, primary uh, investigator of this study, and I'm looking very much forward to talk about this uh, study here in your podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We reviewed many of the abstracts from this meeting and selected what we thought were some of the best abstracts, reflecting some of the newest data and most exciting developments in the field. So tell me a little bit about the study design and what you set out to evaluate. Yes, um, I think uh, maybe just a bit of background. I think uh, also at this meeting and at uh, publications recently, we heard a lot about the microbiota, the genital tract microbiota, either in the vagina or in the cervix or in the endometrium. And, uh, and it seems there is a consistent association between a lactobacillus dominant uh, genital tract microbiota, that being either in the vagina or in the endometrium, and optimal reproductive outcome following IVF. Um, so coming into that, uh, we, we also saw a, an early study in, uh, in 2016 where we saw this relationship or association between abnormal vaginal microbiota and poor reproductive outcome in IVF. So we thought, okay, well, it's interesting to look at associations, but let's take the next step and let's look at causation and try to make that randomized controlled trial. Yeah, because I don't think there's been a randomized controlled trial on this. To my knowledge, no. Yeah, I mean, there have been some studies that have characterized what are the microbiota and can we identify them, but nothing that I'm aware of that's actually looked at treatment and IVF outcomes. I agree, at least not in a randomized setup. I, I'm not aware of it, at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read uh, a lot and I haven't uh, seen one either. Uh. So coming to the study design then, uh, so it's a randomized controlled trial and it's ICH GCP monitored because we have an investigational drug which is actually the lactobacilli uh, live biofuelpeutic product. It's in the FDA uh, drug category and um, and uh, it's currently in, fa in the phase two for the IVF indication and it's in the phase three for for the uh, BV indication, recurrent BV indication. And is it given vaginally, or how do you administer the lactobacilli? That's, a, that's administered vaginally, okay. yes. And, um, and uh, so um, the aim was to uh, screen patients for abnormal vaginal microbiota. In our study, uh, a diagnosis much resembling bacterial vaginosis, but with some caveats that I think it's important, but 
nevertheless, it's it's quite similar to bacterial vaginosis, and uh, we are targeting Gardnerella and uh, what is now called Fanny Hesia vagina, previously Atopobium vagina, and uh, above thresholds, so this is a quantitative PCR. So we think, okay, if you have a lot of these bacteria in the vagina, then you are much more likely to also have them in the endometrium where they might hamper implantation and early pregnancy development. Yeah, so the thought is the abnormal flora could ascend and the endometrium is no longer really thought to be a sterile organ as it was as it once was this is the hypothesis uh, the biological plausibility if you will yes and when you when you screened your population what percentage of patients had gardnerella dominant flora which persons would characterize yeah, like them how many how uh, common uh, it's, is it? it's it's quite common in the infertile population so in our study it was around 25 percent okay and then how many patients did you so what were the three arms of this study yeah, sorry. So when we had screened for the abnormal vaginal microbiota, we randomized them one to one to one to one arm being uh, the full active arm, which is clindamycin, 300 milligrams uh, two times per day for seven days, and then followed immediately by lactin V, which is the lactobacillus crispatus um, live biofuric product. Uh, and, uh, and they took that until the clinical pregnancy scan if they were pregnant at the HCG. And did you ever retest them to see whether or not the flora shifted after treatment? We did take vagina samples. We, not, we are not finalized um, uh, analyzing all the vagina samples uh, yet. There are a lot of samples, I can tell you. <laughs> so uh, so <laughs> now I am just have the results for the reproductive outcome. It's an ongoing process to both make microbiota data with qPCR and with the sequencing. And, it, and it's quite laborious. And I mean... After Corona, everything is in in, uh, in limited yeah. stock. So I, I mean, we are really hit by that. But yeah. but I think eventually, in half a year or so, we will have the results also on all the microbiota throughout pregnancy as well. On that, so your first arm was double treatment, Clinda plus Lactobacillus. The second arm was just Clindamycin and the placebo Lactin V, and then the placebo placebo in the third arm. Got it. And yeah. what did you find? So the findings were. Uh, non-significant. I mean, we found equal live birth between all three arms, around 40% in all three arms. And there was absolutely no indication that our intervention worked. Huh, that's fascinating. Which was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's disappointing, obviously, right? Like, you yeah. want to make a discovery and you want to find something. But I also think that negative findings are important, too, and really important to present and talk about. Um, what do you make of it? Like, do you think that that's real? Do you think that perhaps you did the wrong treatment or the patients were inadequately treated? Or does microbiota not matter in the field of implantation? So obviously there are limitations in our study. I mean, there are in any study, but, but also in our study, and we're going to discuss those uh, maybe now, but also obviously in the publication. But, but I think the most important thing that I want to say is we say this all the time to our patients and ourselves, association is not causation. Right. And I think this is an important point to, uh, to sit back and think that now we have a, the first randomized controlled trials and we cannot see a causative effect. So we need to think, okay, we see an association but it's not causative, so perhaps there is some other upstream mechanism which do something to patients so that they are inhabited by Lactobacillus crispatus, for example. And for that reason, they have repro right. optimal reproductive right. outcome. And, and it's not because of the Lactobacilli right. per se. It's because of all the other things right. that it's maybe associated diet, with. Maybe diet, maybe 
I mean, in intimate factors. behavior, sexual behavior. I mean, it could be a lot of things. Right. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And then if you look at the presence of abnormal flora in the general population, how does the infertile population compare to that? Like what percentage of patients in the general population have an abnormal vaginal flora? That would be around 15, 20%. So it is a bit higher in yeah. the infertile population. And I mean, could be because of their background characteristics. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. But I mean, could I also mean, be a causative right? mechanism. That was what we set out to do. But yeah. it seems it is not, at least not in the way that we explored it. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. And I think interesting to know. Obviously, there's a lot of other work that's being presented at this meeting in this direction. I think a lot of excitement about microbiome. Somebody just published that there was the first microbiome transplant from one woman to another. And... I, I think it's fantastic. I really commend you for doing this trial, looking at it systematically, and presenting findings, even though negative. I think they're incredibly important. So thank you. And thank you for coming on the podcast. And for our listeners, Tor has not presented these at the meeting, so I had to really beg him to uh, come speak with me early in the morning. The convention hall is quiet, and these data are embargoed until his oral presentation in about an hour. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. This next abstract is titled Perinatal and Postnatal Outcomes Up to the Third Year of Life After the Transfer of Mosaic Embryos Compared with Euploid Embryos. And I am joined this morning by the presenting author, and you are? Uh, hello, good morning. My name is Ruth Morales from Instituto Bernabeu of Alicante. Um, first of all, thank you so much uh, for choosing our work about the, the outcomes of mosaic embryos for, for, your, for your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. And I think that probably as all of our listeners know, mosaic embryos are a hot topic in terms of what do we do with them? How do we manage? So tell me a little bit um, about what you did and how you followed these patients. So how many patients did you follow that had mosaic embryos? And then a little bit more about your study design. Okay. Um, hundreds of embryos, of mosaic embryos, have been transferred to date around the world and um, some studies have published that the outcomes are a little bit worse in terms of the implantation and pregnancy rate but uh, really when when we separate type of mosaic according to the level of annuality okay we find that the the mosaic embryos with low rate of annuality below 50% that is are called the uh, low-grade mosaic embryos, have similar outcomes to the euploid embryos, okay? And in our case, it's like this, okay? And, and according to previous results. But the really important thing um, is that even the pregnancy and the embryo implant and, and achieve a pregnancy, uh, the really important thing is uh, if it's, the baby is healthy, Right, and so what I think distinguished your study from some previous studies that have been presented is you guys didn't really look at whether or not these embryos implanted. You looked at the health of the babies up to three years after these children were born. Yes, because there are several studies that analyze implantation and pregnancy rates, but um, the studies that uh, evaluate in the perinatal and postnatal outcomes 
are limited. So for the reasons our study is important because it uh, provides more data about these uh, prenatal and, uh, and postnatal outcomes. And, and uh, our data uh, have shown that uh, this uh, prenatal and postnatal data, data of children born from the mosaic embryos are similar to the euploid embryos. For example, in terms of the, of the newborn parameters, the newborn measures, the birth weight, length, uh, head circumference, for example, or the APGAR score. And regarding to the congenital anomalies, okay, their incidence are similar between the mosaic embryos and the euploid embryos. Uh, so, and for example, the chronic diseases or health problems until the, the average age of the three years are, are, are similar in both groups. So, it, so I think it, very reassuring, right, that if we are going to transfer mosaic embryos, which I would argue most or many centers are starting to transfer mosaic embryos if they haven't been for a while, then we can really counsel these patients that it has now been looked at. We've followed these children up to three years of age, and we've seen no differences in parameters at birth. We've seen no differences in the incidence of congenital anomalies and overall the health of these children seem to be reassuring. Um, the numbers were small though. How many patients did you have in the mosaic group compared to the control group? Yes, in our study, in the mosaic group, uh, uh, was uh, fi uh, 57 em embryos that achieve a healthy life bar. And in the, in the Euplid group, uh, we had 115. Okay, and the sample size is not very, it's not very large. Uh, for the reasons we we need further studies to to have more data, but um, this study provides um, because there are there are few studies that analyze these uh, outcomes. Okay, in right. the I children. Right. Most of the studies have looked at what is the ongoing pregnancy rate and what is the live birth rate, and that's where the studies stop. So I really like that your study started with birth and looked at birth onwards um, for three years. So congratulations on a study, very well done. And I look forward to seeing more data in this eMERGE to really look at the health of these children long-term after mosaic embryo transfer. Yes, well, thank you for, for inviting us to to show our data and to talk about our study because it's very, very important to, to continue the, the collecting that data of these children to, to give a better counseling to the patients okay, and to, to have more confidence with the transfer of these embryos. This next abstract is titled Sex and Reproductive Health Education in the UK. What are we teaching teenagers? And I am joined by... Hi everyone, I am Rina Biswakarma. I am from the UK and I am a PhD student at the University College London. Welcome, Rena. I was really excited to read your abstract. Education is a huge interest of mine and I thought it was really interesting to see the type of study that you did, which is not, I would say is not a typical study that gets presented at these types of meetings. So for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about the survey that you did looking at UK teenagers, what questions you asked, 
and how you conducted the study. Yep, so we did a mixed method study asking teenagers about their uh, sex education knowledge, uh, their fertility knowledge, as well as their reproduction knowledge. And the, the survey was distributed to schools across the UK and 20 schools participated. In total, we had 931 teenagers uh, do the study. And did you get any resistance from the schools trying to ask a survey about sex and reproduction? No, actually, we were really lucky because we put it out to any schools in the UK and we actually got a lot of responses uh, for school teachers to want to participate in it. So we were really lucky. Yeah, no, I feel like in some states in the United States that might be a little bit more challenging. I, I mean, maybe maybe so, because um, uh, there were not many schools from uh, faith schools. Faith-based so, schools, right. So, I mean, that is something that... So, what were some of the questions that you asked? So, we asked students about uh, the quality of sex education that they had received at their school. Uh, how much sex education they receive at school, the topics that they learn in and outside of school. Um, do they talk to their parents when it comes to sex and reproductive health knowledge and education? So a lot of sex education questions as well as assessment of their fertility knowledge. So questions such as when is a woman most fertile during the yeah, menstrual cycle? So let's talk a little bit about that. Not only when is a woman most fertile during her cycle, but what about the questions that you asked about age and reproduction and I think this is a two-part question. One is, what did you learn? And I think the second part is, what can we do better moving forward? So we asked students about the impacts of age on egg quality and quantity, as well as age on sperm quality and quantity. And we found that more students knew about the impacts of age on egg quality and quantity than they did sperm quality and quantity. But um, that really does highlight that we need to do more in terms of male fertility knowledge because uh, students currently are being taught about the impacts of age on egg quality and quantity. Uh, yeah. And what about, I, I was struck by the high number of students that thought that women can have babies at 45 and 50. I think we need to do a better job educating our youth on yeah. realistic ages of Absolutely. conception, right? Absolutely. And What's more shocking is that they think a man can naturally, you know, impregnate uh, women over the age of 60 and not have any complications. We, most students thought that over 80 was the natural age. I mean, it, it's, it's, it can be true because of media, but... Right. I worry, not, yeah, yeah, I worry a lot, both in the U.S. and internationally, about celebrities having babies in their 50s and not disclosing the origin of that pregnancy or talking openly about things like egg donation. And I think it sets this unrealistic expectation from a very young age that fertility doesn't decline. Yes, I mean, it's very true because uh, the UK curriculum does, oh, the England curriculum does highlight that we need to teach about fertility, but it's not being taught adequately or teachers are not being trained adequately to be able to teach it to their students. So we really need to make sure that the A, we need to teach our, treat, uh, teach our teachers adequately to be able to give that knowledge to the students and also really to give a comprehensive uh, topic variety and a comprehensive um, 
way of teaching such topics to the students. Right, we need to change sex education. Exactly. And so I think in part of your discussion, you talked about how you did create some educational information to be shared. Um, how are you sharing that? So we, from the data from the study, we created a teacher's guide. So it is a slide deck consisting of different topics that students had wanted to learn about. So abortion, miscarriage, endometriosis, PCOS. And the slide deck was co-designed with teachers and um, it is uh, to be shared with teachers in schools so they can get some help to deliver such topics. And we are really doing a pilot to further see how we can help teachers and improve it later on. Uh, so that's something interesting that we will be working on in the future from the data. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming and speaking with me and congratulations on this excellent work. It was a pleasure to see. And I think more work like this needs to be done in order to educate our youth on fertility, aging and reproduction. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This next author is sharing her abstract, Fetal Ploidy Status in Pregnancy Loss, Evaluated by Cell-Free Fetal DNA in Maternal Blood versus Direct Sequencing of the Pregnancy Tissue. And I am joined by... My name is Tanya Slyker-Hartby, and um, I'm a local here from Copenhagen. I'm a medical doctor, and uh, I've done a PhD in the field of uh, fetal medicine, looking into non-invasive prenatal testing, so the cell-free fetal DNA-based test in ongoing pregnancies. And then after I started my clinical career and uh, saw all these uh, very impacted couples experiencing pregnancy loss, I uh, went into the field of uh, pregnancy loss and then for the last two years I've been leading the Copenhagen Pregnancy Loss Study and I've done this um, study in where we tried to use self-refuted DNA based testing in pregnancy loss. So, and, and that's amazing. So my understanding, and I think most of our listeners will agree that when patients have miscarriages, we often cannot collect the tissue to look at ploidy status of the miscarriage tissue. Either the patient miscarries at home and isn't able to collect the tissue, or we do a DNC and there's just not enough fetal tissue. And so what your work shows is that in addition to doing fetal testing, that you can get cell-free fetal DNA from maternal blood samples in order to see whether or not the fetus was aneuploid or euploid, correct? Exactly, yeah. And we got the same uh, results regarding the collection of tissue because all our patients, um, the couple, the Copenhagen Pregnancy Loss Study is an ongoing cohort. We have been including since 2020, and we have had 1,800 couples um, participating so far. And all of them are asked to collect the tissue, but actually we can only use two-thirds of the tissue samples that we are handed in, because either they didn't, the, the remaining one-third either didn't uh, manage to collect the tissue, or the tissue was not um, having chorionic villi or fetal tissue um, so I, I guess my question is, how early can you detect fetal DNA in maternal circulation? Yeah, we have successful tests down to gestational week five. So we can, it's not um, a 100% conclusive rate or a call rate in the very early weeks, but we can definitely do it down to week five. 
And so for your study, did the women have to have a live fetus at the time that cell-free fetal DNA was collected, or could the no. heartbeat have stopped and the fetus yeah. be yeah. declared non-viable? We, we are including couples with either ongoing miscarriages, so where uh, the, the fetus is uh, spontaneously miscarried after being um, intrauterine confirmed, or um, missed abortion, and 80% of our participants do have missed abortions. So the, the fetal heart didn't uh, beat anymore, but the, feet, the pregnancy tissue was still in situ while we took the, the blood sample. And so if somebody has a DNCA or they pass the sample, how long do you have to collect cell-free fetal DNA from the maternal circulation before that will disappear. We know from term deliveries of healthy uh, living babies that the fetal DNA is immediately washed out or eliminated from the maternal blood. But we did a subgroup of um, tests where the blood was drawn in uh, after the, the procedure, the either surgical or medical procedure was done and the tissue had passed. And we could actually do the self-refusal DNA-based testing afterwards, up to 24 hours after. But the success rate decreased over time. So in the first six hours, it was still okay. We had a no-call rate of 13%. But later on, after 12 to um, 24 hours, the the no-call rate increased to 35%. So it is a short window. We need to to do it immediately as soon as we we give the diagnosis, uh, we should take the blood sample. And is the platform that you used any different in terms of ability to detect cell-free fetal DNA than some of the commercially available platforms that are out there? And I think the, the reason that I'm asking that is if I see a miscarriage in the clinic next week, am I able to order a cell-free fetal DNA test on that patient? Or no. is this not yet ready for... Unfortunately not. Oh, it might be that I don't know about some of the commercial tests, but we did a few uh, modifications here. And and one, at least compared to our in-house uh, NIPT uh, test, where we only report trisomy 13, 18, and 21, and then the sex chromosome abnormalities, we in pregnancy loss will have to look at all the chromosomes because it's a much wider panel of abnormalities. So you have to to identify or decide cutoffs, set score cutoffs for all chromosomes because you will find a lot of trisomy 16 and trisomy 22, trisomy 15. They look in the different. later losses, right, I would imagine in earlier pregnancy losses you're going to have a lot more chromosomal abnormalities because by definition, those aren't the ones that make it out of the first Exactly. The later losses, we are actually including patients up to uh, week 22, and you're absolutely right that in the the second trimester, we do not see as many uh, chromosome abnormalities. And when you looked at Floydy's status for recurrent pregnancy loss, and I know this is not what you're describing in your abstract, (laughs) but I'm curious, what percentage aneuploid did you find? We do find... uh, Correct me if I didn't understand the question, but we, when we look at all the conclusive test results, we find a 50-50 distribution. So we will have, and that's according to previous study made on the tissue. Yeah, so uh, that's also like a, a way to say that it seems feasible to do this test because our results are actually reflecting what we knew from the 
their previous studies on, on And tissue. then what about things like triploidy or uniparental disomy, the platform that you have developed, are you able to detect that? No, that's a limitation with the, the current platform. And I know that some of the commercial tests can detect these and, and we are working on um, on this um, improvement of, of our test, but in this, in the results that we present in the study, we were not able to detect these atypical abnormalities, and they are probably, uh, or they are estimated to to account for about 10% of the losses. So they will be incorrectly annotated as euploid in our cohort. Yeah. So, but I, I do think that probably this is the wave of where we're going in the future to collect cell-free fetal DNA from maternal samples or from pregnant person samples in order to avoid some of the pitfalls with tissue collection. I think so too. And also because it is easier to do. So it's scalable and we will actually be able to implement it, implement it in a large-scale way and that will of course help the patients because as a clinician I know that they are asking for some clarification they really want us to do or to give them some exact right? patients want answers and I can imagine I think as a clinician when you diagnose a miscarriage it'd be so nice to say to the patient why don't you go have your go back to the lab let's draw some blood and let's let's see if we can figure out why this happened right then there on the spot and at least start that evaluation a little yeah. bit sooner. Yeah, and that's one uh, good thing about this test. But another thing is also that it will enable us as researchers in the field of pregnancy loss to focus on the euploid losses because I think that's where we will have to to look and gain more knowledge to uh, to be better to treat and prevent further losses. I I could not agree more. I think, yeah, that's, the, yeah. I think that's the bane of all of our existence is why do euploid pregnancy losses occur and what can we learn from them? So I really commend you on this work and thank you so much for coming by the podcast to speak with me about it. It has abstract. been a pleasure and, and thank you for the work you're doing. <laughs> This next abstract is titled, Clustering Identifies Distinct Subtypes of PCOS Towards a Rational Approach to PCOS Classification. And I am joined by... Hi, my name is Kim van der Ham, and I'm a PhD student from the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Uh, yeah, thank you for uh, having me here. <laughs> thank you so much for joining. And before we started recording, I was just saying that the Netherlands are a hot spot for PCOS research. And I think most of our listeners probably appreciate that the Rotterdam criteria came from the Netherlands. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you're presenting today. Yeah, um, I, uh, uh, I presented our uh, results about the cluster analysis uh, that identified uh, three distinct uh, PCOS subtypes. Uh, because if you look at the criteria now, you have four different phenotypes, uh, but the phenotypes don't correlate with the different comorbidities. Because yeah, we know that uh, women with PCOS have an increased risk for developing comorbidities. Uh, but for example, if you look at hyperandrogenism, a lot of studies investigated whether hyperandrogenism is the underlying risk factor for uh, cardiometabolic problems, uh, but the results remain inconclusive. So uh, Professor Dunai from the US uh, applied an unsupervised hierarchical cluster analysis on their cohort, and uh, they found three different clusters. 
which represent three different subtypes, and we replicated that in yeah, our cohort. So tell me and tell our listeners what are those different, what are the three different subtypes? And I will say, like I recently had a patient who clearly met Rotterdam criteria for PCOS and she was completely freaked out about now having the diagnosis of PCOS. And so I think if we can be more specific about what are those subtypes and what are the different risk stratification criteria with those, we can reassure some of the patients who may not have cardiometabolic risk factors that, no, this is just an ovarian phenotype or this is not associated with that. So what are those three subtypes? Yeah, we found a metabolic subtype uh, and we showed that in the metabolic subtype, uh, these women had higher uh, levels of insulin and glucose and also had a higher BMI. Uh, and we also found that they had a more unfavorable lipid profile, so higher levels of triglycerides and LDL, uh, but also had a higher systolic and diastolic uh, blood pressure. Uh, we found a reproductive subtype. These women had higher levels of AMH and a higher total follicle count. Um, and we found an indeterminate subtype, that's the most difficult subtype, uh, but they were more in between the other two. And so in the reproductive subtype, and this is what I think my patient had, she was thin, she's healthy, she has an AMH of 13 and an antral follicle count of 50, but she's lean, she has good lipids, and otherwise I would say probably not huge risk factors for cardiometabolic disease. Um, is that an accurate portrayal, or do you still think that those with the reproductive subtype still are at higher risk for cardiometabolic disease? Yeah, we have, yeah, we have to investigate that further because we don't use the cluster analysis and look at, uh, at a follow-up study. But for now, it looks like they don't have the unfavorable uh, cardiometabolic profile. Uh, but I think it's good to follow up uh, these women and to really show what their profile is when they are uh, behind the reproductive age, so uh, after the age of 45. Right, and so long-term follow-up with these women is probably essential. Yeah, exactly. And maybe uh, these women, yeah, uh, because they have a higher AMH and a higher total follicle count, their reproductive lifespan is also a little bit longer. So I think it's good to look into it as well, because then you can inform the patients about this as well. Right. Um, and do some of these women go through menopause at a slightly later age than women who don't have the reproductive phenotype? I don't know yet, but I, I expect that. Yes. Yeah. 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 What else can we say from these data? Um, I think it will uh, help us and will refine our diagnostic criteria because there's a lot of discussion now as well about the, the name, about the name PCOS. And I think it's too early with this data to, to change the name to like a reproductive kind of syndrome or metabolic syndrome. Uh, but it, it will help in the future. And I think that an unsupervised learning method uh, will help us to define the diagnostic criteria and to make more uh, prognose-based um, characteristics. Now, yeah. my understanding is there is another meeting, Rotterdam Revisited, 20 years later. Are you going to be present at that meeting? Yeah, I'm definitely uh, going to be there because it's my hometown. <laughs> uh, yeah, so our whole team from Rotterdam will be there on, the, on a beautiful ship. A very old Rotterdam, SS Rotterdam ship, so yeah, uh, it'll be amazing. nice. Yeah. So the meeting's taking place on the ship, and what, what do you think the, will be the outcome that will have a recharacterization of what the Rotterdam criteria really are? Yeah, I think the name can be changed, but 
I don't know exactly what to be continued, I guess, after after that meeting. Yeah, yeah, indeed, I think so, yes. <laughs> Anything else you think our listeners should know about? Um, no, I think it's good to look at different subtypes and not only at the phenotypes as they are defined now. And I think cluster analysis will really help us and also uh, more to the artificial intelligence cluster analysis. Um, so yeah, I think it's good to use also these kind of methods. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your work and really congratulations for doing such wonderful work. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. (laughs) This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.